Playlist with Ben and Fiona. A few good men, which I don't have a lot of time for. You just can't handle the truth, Fiona. Welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS, and I'm joined by my co-host, SBS channel manager, Ben Nguyen. Hey, Ben. Hey, Fig. Nice to be back with you. We haven't crossed paths in a, in a little while. We had uh, John filling in as a guest host while you were away, but um, nice to have you back in the chair. Thank you kindly. Yeah, waited a couple of weeks. How do you follow that? <laughs> How do you follow that? I had to take a, take a couple of weeks to people to forget John's appearance. Uh, yes, back with a vengeance. <laughs> and thank you to John for filling in while I was away. Of course, of course. Well, um, a big week again. This week on the playlist, Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne fight for their right to protest in the trial of the Chicago 7. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And speaking of Baron Cohen, V has just stepped out of a preview screening of Borat's subsequent movie film. I hope quarantine never ends. And we'll share her initial reactions. And we catch up with AKA Jane Rowe in What Have You Been Watching? This is my death bed confession and click add to favorites on a couple of current SBS on demand picks. That's a lot to get through. Let's get into it. How about we start with the trial of the Chicago seven? So we've spent a year watching wall to wall coverage of street protests, police brutality, systemic racism and political abuses of office. So it's all just a little bit of history repeating to go back to the events of 1968 ahead of the US presidential election and the long drawn out trial that followed. My trials begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. We're introduced in quick succession to the key players, Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong from succession as Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, the stoned leaders of anarchic protest group, the Yippies. If we leave here without saying anything about why we we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. Eddie Redmayne and Alex Sharp as Tom Hayden and Rennie Davis, the more clean-cut student protest leaders, and John Carroll Lynch as David Dillinger, a bald, aging suburban dad passionate enough about ending the Vietnam War to join with these young people in staging a protest in Chicago outside the Democratic National Convention. This is what revolution looks like, real revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. These five men were joined by another couple of white ring-ins and by Bobby Seale, the chair of the Black Panthers, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, recently seen in Watchmen, and all, as we see in the film, paraded in front of the media to face charges initiated by the new Nixon administration that would hold them responsible for the riots and bloodshed at the hands of police that occurred at Grant Park that summer in Chicago. So it really is an all-star cast here. Mark Rylance, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, to name a few. There doesn't seem to be much room for women, it must be said. Um, and this comes from the writer-director Aaron Sorkin. His first directoral debut was the recent Molly's Game, but this is probably a bit closer to A Few Good Men, which um, he first wrote as a playwright and then became a successful film in that it all mostly takes place inside a courtroom. Um, Fee, you're not a big Aaron Sorkin fan. How did you take to this? Correct. I'm not, and I think I'm on the record um, <laughs> for that. Uh, and, you know, you name check a few good men, which I don't have a lot of time for. But, um, and it's no. stock and stock and trade, isn't it? 
No, it's, because it's it's all of the hallmarks. You, you, you just can't handle the truth, Fiona. <laughs> Boom, Tish. Uh, <laughs> yep, correct. Um, and look, I'm in the minority there. I get it. Everyone loves Aaron Sorkin. Don't even. I, I, I've not watched The West Wing. Partly because of, I mean, mostly because of him. I've got to be honest. Um, I just, I don't, I don't really align with that theatricality to mm. his um, viewpoint and that the the civic purpose and the the sheen that goes on the way he tells stories and the the grandiose speeches that his stock in trade. Um, yeah. And you know, what? I'm not going to attack anyone who who loves that. I'm married to someone who loves that. So it's, um, I mean, I do attack him on that. But anyway, that's another thing. But um, it's, you know, you like what you like. And I just, that's not my sensibility at all. Um, that said, the moments here, um, it's a lot that he takes on and you can see the attraction of it for Aaron Sorkin. And he's been working on this for 14 years, I think it is, when he was first originally going to write it for Steven Spielberg, who was going to mm. direct it. But um, it, then it went through a few incarnations and ultimately he's ended up directing it having cut his teeth on Molly's game which I didn't mind but well that's good to hear you know (laughs) put that on the poster um but uh yeah he Sorkins this it's there are those grandiose speeches that because the whole thing was a show trial like the the whole trial of these protesters outside of the Democratic National Convention it was pardon the pun, but it was trumped up because <laughs> it was a new administration. It was the Nixon administration finding a way to try and minimise any kind of civic unrest at the time. People were protesting, of course they were, because about the Vietnam War, and it was a way to try and crush that uprising that was occurring by grounding A, a revolution, as, uh, Absolutely. as they say. <laughs> as they do say. So just what was the question? <laughs> what did I think? Um, it, it has its moments. There was some absurdity in the real events and in, he's, he's referred to court transcripts a lot here, yeah. but also he's taken his own liberties with it and added elements that I didn't think needed to be embellished to the degree that they were. Like, say the ending, like that, that's entirely made up. But um, look, it's a lot. I didn't, I didn't hate it. I just, it was, it was a bit flat. I didn't feel tension. Um, it was a lot of actors got to act big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the accents were a little unusual. Sasha yeah, Baron. yeah. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen's does does wander a little bit. That that Boston accent um, verges on Australian at times. Um, yeah, he travels the world. I, uh, uh, I I wanted. I'm interested to know how much did you know about the real events going into this? Yeah, not not in any great detail. No, I, I knew of the demonstrations outside of the Democratic National Convention, but um, and I know. Tom Hayden, who is played by Eddie Redmayne here, went on to be a senator. Um, but no, I, I didn't know anything in extreme detail at all. So a lot of it was was playing out as news. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Well, I mean, as you say, it really was really was a circus. Um, mm. You know, a media circus and many other things. And I think you know a lot of that was due to the sort of bizarre behaviour of the judge, Judge Hoffman, who's played here by Frank Langella. There was a whole lot of grandstanding going on from various sides. Um, I did know a fair bit about the trial from a 2007 documentary by Brett Morgan called Chicago 10, um, which in many ways is very similar to this in that 
it's it's largely about dramatizing what happened in the trial and of course you know there weren't any film or tv cameras present for the trial but there are all the transcripts of everything that was said and so um the technique that brett morgan takes in that documentary is to dramatize the the transcripts with actors reading them and then using cgi 3d animation to play it out which i think was sort of a, a bold attempt at at sort of doing something other than kind of stagey recreations, um, yeah. but I don't think exactly comes off in that doco. But certainly, you know, I had a sense from that that there really were these larger-than-life characters involved. And I do think that one thing that that Sorkin relies on is a fairly simplistic binary between good and bad, um, and I think that's sort of there in in all his work. Um, And that's certainly here as well. But I would say that for the most part, I feel like a lot of his signature grandstanding is not present. And that's probably because he is forced to rely on the reality of what what happened. And, And I think he does, for the most part, allow that to speak for itself. Um, and I, I, I was drawn in by just sort of the horror of what these real life figures were experiencing in terms of both this horrific war going on at the same time that they were, you know, adamantly opposed to. Mm-hmm. And then things like the way that Bobby Seale was treated in the trial yeah. and how, how much the way that he was treated differed from the other white defendants. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's where the film is at its strongest with, you know, the judge just denying him, you know, personhood really, like any kind of representation. He's completely, I mean, there's a scene where he's bound and gagged in the courtroom. Um, You know, it's a gross miscarriage of justice. Um, And I think that's where the film, you know, that is depicting what actually happened and I think it's strong there. But then when Bobby left the case, I I think the film sort of loses a bit of its energy there. I do take what you mean about there is a certain... Flatness, And I do feel like some of that is due to, you know, what does feel like a little stagey that, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part, we're either inside this courtroom or in some of the back rooms or sort of back at the the office that the defendants are operating out of, yeah. you know, and I, I could in fact see this as a done as a stage play. Yeah. And there's sort of a lot of famous faces in there that aren't necessarily given a huge amount to work with. But Eddie Redmayne did stand out to me as um, he did disappear into his character in the way that uh, that some of the others maybe weren't quite as successful as. Mm, true. Yeah. I mean, I, in the um, version that Steven Spielberg wanted to make, he, he was talking Heath Ledger, which I would love to have seen what he would have done with it. But um, yeah, I, you mentioned, you know, some great actors show up to not do very much. But I think an example of where they make the most of the small screen time they've got, Michael Keaton shows up for, I think, two scenes mm. <laughs> um, and blows them all off the screen. I think it's it's fantastic. Um, he gets a good role too, let's be real. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm yeah. a big fan of Michael Keaton, so I was, I was very um, happy to see his face appear. Yeah. And you mentioned not a lot of women because um, I think, you know, there's not a lot of women in the, in the roles among the actual people, but, you know, Sorkin does have a tradition of not writing fantastic um, female characters. Don't go to West Wing. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Um, but uh, he, 
there's an FBI agent that's been created as a bit of a honey trap to give some testimony, which, yeah, that's his attempt at writing a woman in the story, but I think that was a bit unnecessary. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I think hard to create female characters in a story that doesn't have a lot of them. But, yeah, when you do, maybe that wasn't the best one to write. Yeah, I'm... There's not a lot of women in the documentary either, um, yeah. so I take that point. The release is interesting of this uh, because it is out in cinemas currently, but it simultaneously has been available um, on Netflix. What do you think of that? Well, we're in a pandemic for one thing, so it's um, it's <laughs> that's a good seen. answer. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. Uh, it's, is it in cinemas here? It's not in cinemas. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Oh, sort okay. of having it um, release it, particularly, I think, uh, Dendi cinemas and some independent okay. cinemas. Right. Okay. Interesting release strategy, given a lot of Australians do have Netflix. But um, yeah, it's, I think it was what, number four I saw in the rankings on Netflix. Um, so, you know, it's certainly getting seen. And, you know, it's a story of 1968 um, and the years that followed with this lengthy trial. But, of course, it's not about 1968. It's about now and it's 2020. <laughs> you know, it, it's about 2020 as much as it's about 1968. So, yeah, I, I think it's released now for for a reason. Um, I, I don't think it's the best example of using historical storylines as a take on current politics. But, look, it's not terrible. <laughs> Again, pop that on the poster. <laughs> you know, as far as, you know, movies as history lessons goes... You could do a lot worse. Yes, yeah, you so, absolutely could do a lot worse than this. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> so I that's think a ringing endorsement. I, I think a lot of people are have watched this or, or are looking at this, sort of um, just taking a look at you know, sort of what people are saying on social media and so forth. And one wouldn't surprise me if if this uh, comes up again, you know, around Oscar time. So I think it's mm. it's worth checking out. Sure. Look, you know, I'm all for if a movie makes you. Th- look further into the history of something, absolutely do that. If that's all you get from just watching the movie and you don't do any deeper digging, then, you know, just try and do a little bit more research beyond the the end credits. Well, what the movie doesn't give us, which has become a bit of a staple of biopics, is we don't get to see the real images of the, the real <laughs> figures at the end in the credits. Um, and I would suggest that people actually seek out um, footage of the real Abby Hoffman because he was such a live wire. And I don't know that mm. um, Sasha Baron Cohen quite captures that in his performance. Um, Fee, I think you had a final thought. Well, I did have a final thought. In um, If watching a movie makes you look further into the history of what it's depicting, um, I'm all for that. Um, and also here I think it... It kind of requires you to do that. I don't. Part of my issue with it was I don't. It tries a bit of a scattershot approach at telling events, and it's whose side was it? Um, who's telling which story? What's truth? Yeah, I think it didn't quite convey. There's a bit of assumed knowledge going into it, so yeah, do, do your research. I think, and don't just rely on a movie for as a history lesson. Nice one. So that's, uh, as we said, it's out in cinemas and it's also available on Netflix, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, And Fee, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, we're talking about whether he impressed us or not as the real life uh, Abby Hoffman. Um, He impressed a lot of people so much that they would repeat his catchphrases endlessly as Borat in 
that successful film from a number of years ago. Um, you have just, just minutes ago, stepped out of a, of a screening of the sequel that comes out this week. I have week. indeed. So, look, if I was a little bit sketchy on the detail of the trial of the Chicago 7, it's because my head's still in... Um Borat land and, uh, or should I say Borat, subsequent movie film, delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. There's fewer um, mankinis in uh, Trial of Chicago 7. Correct. And, well, let's just say there's a 2020 take on the mankini, um, which it's just a glimpse happily, but, uh, yeah, one I could live without. So this drops on Amazon um on Friday, Friday the 23rd of October. So I've had a little sneak peek at it. And 14 years on from, do I need to go into the original? I think a lot of I, people have a familiarity I, with the character of Borat and his ex. I feel like we're talking about assumed knowledge. We can assume that knowledge. <laughs> but this was a surprise um, that, uh, that he was making this film and that it was coming out. Um, I think like a few of his recent projects sort of been made under the cover of darkness. Correct. By stealth, if you will. Um, and I do, you might remember a few months ago, if you're on Twitter and Facebook and such, there was a bit of um, a hubbub because he w- he showed up in character at a rally and has spoken about it being a threatening experience. Um, yeah, maybe he was making this film. Uh, maybe that shows up in a scene here. So yes, it is for the most part in America again. And it's mining similar territory, of course, using this character of a um, Kazakhstani, in inverted commas, journalist uh, doing some on a mission to America and using hokey stereotypes of Eastern Europeans as a front to then puncture the American exceptionalism kind of trope, which he does and then some here, um, especially when you're dealing with coronavirus QAnon conspiracy theories, yeah, and a whole lot of <laughs> things I could go into, but it's all just sort of moments ago. Um, and there's a bit of a thread, you know, about Holocaust denial as well because it's 2020 and all these things are still going around on Facebook. Yeah. Sort and of in the White House. Almost, America's almost an easier target now than it was at the time of the original. Well, this is absolutely true. So it's... A little bit like shooting fish in a barrel when you're making fun of the Trump administration and his cronies. But as with Sasha Baron Cohen, he goes that extra mile and, you know, says things to people's face. And uh, there are some very uncomfortable moments. Um, There are some cameos uh, with people associated with the administration, shall we say. Um, And so he returns home um, after being in a prison camp for the results of making the first film and bringing shame to Kazakhstan and discovers he's got a daughter called uh, Sandra Jessica Parker Sagdiev, um, played by the very, very bold and brave um, Irina Novak, who she dreams of um, emulating Princess Melania, shall we say, and having the same Ah. kind of life, living in a gilded cage, hailing from a similar region of the (laughs) world. Similar-ish, if you don't know your geography. Um, Mm. Yes, so she wants that kind of trajectory, which brings us in a very roundabout way. I'm glossing over a lot in the story because it's a Borat film and, that yeah, there's a lot lot of plot and a lot of changing names of the film as well as the plot takes different turns. But the ultimate goal is to have face-to-face time with someone associated with the administration. 
But all that said, uh, there's a scene that comes very late in the film and, you know, it's probably going to be the one that everyone's talking about. Um, don't want to spoil it, but, uh, yeah, it's it features someone very uh, high up in the administration, well, you know, in the inner circle, let's say. Um, yeah, and it's one of the classic Borat gotcha moments. Um, I had to rewind it, actually, to just make sure it was I was seeing what I thought I was. Um it's weird. <laughs> it, look, it's a Borat movie, of course it is, but uh, yeah, the access that they have um, and the rope they give people to just show them at their worst when all they're when they think they're being discreet is really something to see. Anyway, uh, I've successfully talked around it without saying anything. My question is, firstly, is it is it funny? <laughs> just the one. And 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 secondly, can you get away with this? Stick now, given that no one surely would take him to be a legitimate Kazakhstani journalist anymore. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Is it funny? Look, I did have a. It's similar in that there's shock laugh at some. There's a debutante ball that it's a gross shock laugh, <laughs> um, laughing through your fingertips because it's yeah. Um, so yes, I confess I laughed a couple of times. Um, can you get away with it? There, there are some genuinely candid scenes. I think it's much like the first. There are some people in there to drive the narrative forward, so it's. I don't think it's all entirely candid, but there are enough scenes that, yeah, you can tell some of them were hidden cameras, some of them are pixelated people, so they weren't roped in. They're not in on the joke necessarily. And he's not a Kazakhstani journalist throughout. He's in disguise in various ways. But doing the same shtick, you know, setting a trap for people to expose their own prejudices. And he does so, uh, you know, there's scenes in an abortion clinic, there's uh, Republican ladies gathering. Um, yeah, it's, it's he's in certainly walking in that world and setting a trap. So worth um, watching, do you think, when uh, it comes out on Amazon? This is sort of another one of these uh, pandemic um, yeah. escapees that, uh, again, has been um, pushed to streaming because of the relation to the um, US election timing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, going to Amazon, um, so available in your home if you, if you have access to uh, that service. Yeah, so it's easy to watch. It would be interesting to see how it would perform in the cinemas um, if we were in a normal normal world, whatever that is again anymore. But, um, yeah, with cinema releases, I think, I think there's anticipation because he's been doing various projects along the same lines for a few years now. I think there's enough anticipation about a Borat sequel 14 years later. Yeah, it certainly didn't blow me out of the water, um, but it's similar territory and enough new stuff and there are some good jabs in there. It walks that line. <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it sounds like there's enough there for the fans. You know, maybe this won't be the pop culture phenomenon that the original was. Yes. But, yeah, I don't um, foresee it, it being that. It sounds like, you know, there were so many fans of the first one that it sounds like there's enough there to kind of pull them back in for another go round. Yes. And with, you know, four years of a Trump administration and the handling of the pandemic um, has exposed the flaws of America. So, it's, I mean, not that they weren't on show in other ways, if you know what I mean. Like it, it, but it's kind of at this time there's enough ways to reveal this kind of hypocrisy that it's not, it's not groundbreaking. But, um, but yeah, there's a few cheeky guilty laughs and shock value in there. 
So that's Borat's subsequent... That was almost as long as the name of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, I mean, um, as you've described, has multiple changing subtitles. But Borat's subsequent movie film is is uh, generally what it's known by. And uh, that was your What Have You Been Watching? And it will be launching soon on Amazon Prime Video. Indeed. And what have you been watching, Ben? Well, I have been watching, uh, just just the other night I watched a documentary called AKA Jane Rowe. And I wouldn't usually do this, talk about something that isn't imminently um, available to our listeners in Australia, but uh, I'm sure it will be um, landing somewhere shortly and um, and I would just suggest you keep an eye out for it. This, this was... Um, produced for FX, the channel in the US, to accompany uh, Mrs. America, which we have talked about a few times on the podcast, because, yes, it is about the famous Roe v. Wade US Supreme Court case, which legalised abortion in the US up until the end of the first trimester. But specifically, this is about Norma McCorvey, the woman who the court case was brought for. She was the Jane Roe in Roe v. Wade and a couple of progressive activist lawyers took up her case when under Texan law she had to uh, go through with a, a pregnancy that she had not wished to do so. So she, she because of um, abortion being illegal in Texas, she hadn't been able to legally seek an abortion and the case was brought on her behalf. Now, she is a fascinating character. I um, I have have you seen the documentary? Film? I have seen this film. Yes, yes. I actually watched it last night. Um, yeah, yeah, great. So because I mean, I I actually have to admit to being completely unaware of her story until I saw this. Um, I realised there's a there's a movie. This is going back a ways, but uh, a movie called um, Citizen Ruth starring Laura Dern, which mm. I realised now is is based on Norma's story because mm. after years of being the face of the pro-choice campaign, she switched sides and became involved in the conservative Christian anti-abortion right to life movement. And uh, that was a big win for them. She was the big fish. Yeah, they landed, that's, landed her. That's right. And so the, what's interesting about the documentary is it's not really actually that interested in the Roe v. Wade case particularly. Um, we talked about, you know, a couple of things that assume um, some knowledge in, in just the shows that we've been discussing on the, the films. But um but this really assumes you you kind of know the Roe v. Wade case. It's not a story about you know really sort of what what changed in America as a result. It's not. Um, it's it sort of there's some mention made of of how the Roe v. Wade decision um, is being threatened by the changing makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court. But really, this is at its heart uh, about you know quite a complicated woman who has lived a life around one of the most divisive issues in US politics. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. Yeah, it's not about the history of Roe v. Wade. But what I think it does really well is it sets up her story and why she made a great case um, for the lawyers. Um, you know, they, they needed someone who lived in, a woman who lived in poverty who couldn't cross state borders um, to seek out a legal abortion somewhere else. Like she was, they needed someone who was trapped by circumstance. So she made a good case for that and so a test case and that's what made it all the way through the Supreme Court. But her own story was, you know, she had been abused. Um, so it, it was a, a real, really a hard luck story, like the kind of a classic case. Um, and so the personality that that kind of upbringing can create makes you vulnerable to more abuse and, you know, being used by people. And it's kind of, it sets that trajectory of to what extent was she used by both sides really? Um, to what extent was she wooed to jump ship to um, become a very high profile anti-abortion advocate and campaigner? Um yeah, and it's it is a wild ride this documentary because I didn't know a lot of it either, and it yeah the just the shifting <laughs> storyline. Um, it's it's one of those great documentaries that I love. Is yeah, you just kind of wanting to know where it's going to turn next. The story, if you're not all that familiar with it, which I wasn't. Yeah, and Norma passed away a few years ago. I think what really makes this special is the the access that the filmmakers have to her. So we really do hear her story in her own voice um, yeah. and and we do sort of see her at a difficult time in her life where, you know, she is um, struggling with terminal illness. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think sort of one of the most crushing um, uh, sort of revelations for me was, you know, the long-running relationship that she had with Connie Gonzalez, her sort of, you know, um, partner, um, because she was a lesbian woman and um, they had a sort of very close loving relationship. But her integration into the conservative Christian movement meant that she wasn't able to live, ha- have a loving sexual relationship with this woman anymore. And we see archival um, interviews with Connie who passed away in 1993 and the the pain that that causes her but she clearly has, you know, such love for, for Norma. Um, she wasn't yep. willing to end that relationship. Yeah. No, that that's such a sad undercurrent through the film. Yeah. And Norma speaks to that in some of the footage from shot with her in the, her later life. Um, yeah. Just the, the cost throughout her life, but particularly, you know, with her single biggest relationship in her life. Um, yeah. That was sacrificed as part of the deal of flipping over to becoming conservative Christian um, and becoming a leading light of the anti-abortion movement. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a lot of talking heads throughout. Um, you know, Norma tells her own story, but there's archival footage, but also some access with, um, with um, you know... A lot of the uh, key figures. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's interesting... On both sides. Absolutely. Um, yeah, some testimony that you see how opinions might might change like I'm, I'm curious about a follow-up after the documentary maybe with some of the revelations that happened and I'm not trying to be cagey but it, it's part of the joy of watching the film is is to just wonder what's their story and what what's going on here mm. um yeah there's, for, there's for someone sure. who was part of the campaign to woo to woo Norma across um yeah maybe is reconsidering his actions 
Yeah, I I feel like some of some of the characters that did revolve around her life and, and play like a key role in her life as such interesting figures in their own right. I feel like there's a level of lack of interest in what makes them tick and their own biographies, which sort of partly I think is just a matter of running time, trying to fit so much story into a sort of relatively short feature length that we do miss out on some of that. I felt that there's a a bit of a sort of rug pull moment late in the film, which um, while it's effective, I felt was, you know, like a little bit, it's almost sort of expected of... Um, these kind of character docs now that you sort of have these kind of twists, um, which I, I sort of don't think was was sort of necessary to be treated in that way necessarily. Um, but all that said, I do think it is a terrific documentary and we will have to keep listeners posted on on how to track that one down when it gets a release here. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Sorry, we're talking about something you haven't seen, but we have, so good on us. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we will absolutely let you know when it's, when it's coming and it warrants more conversation. I'd love to have an interview with director just about the access to, um, to Norma. But, anyway, getting ahead of myself there. <laughs> so it's a.k.a. Jane Bro. Something which you can check out right now on SBS <laughs> On Demand. We, we've, had, we've talked about a lot already in the show, so I, I feel like um, I won't go into this in a lot of depth, but is the brand new series of Fargo. So uh, the new season, um, we've sort of seen various iterations of this over the years. It's obviously adapted by from the Coen Brothers film, you know, kind of hugely successful award-winning film starring Frances McDormand from um, all those years ago. And then Noah Hawley, the writer, uh, was charged with adapting this to television and it does take the form of um, an anthology um, usually to do with sort of fairly small town crime and uh, that's sort of set in the American Midwest in sort of Minnesota and surrounds. So we've seen various seasons starring Billy Bob Thornton and Kirsten Dunst and Ewan McGregor over over a number of years and they've all been you know enjoyable romps that sort of speak to the 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 darker side of humanity at the same time um and the brand new season is in some ways on a larger scale it's set in the 1950s in Kansas City and it tells the story of the warring organized crime gangs which are divided between the Italian Americans on one side and the African-Americans on the other, led by Chris Rock. You know, this is, again, I guess, a story that tries to speak to not just America then, but America now, and has race and the, the experience of race in America at its heart, but also involves uh, wacky characters doing <laughs> blackly humorous things, as we would expect from an um a new iteration of Fargo. So not only the new season is dropping weekly on SBS On Demand, but you can, for a limited time, chase up on the seasons one to three as well. So check that out. Fargo, brand new season, plus seasons one to three, out now on SBS On Demand. Absolutely. And a whole bunch of interviews with um, Chris Rock, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Jesse Buckley and Noah Hawley. Um, and I think that's all at sbs.com.au slash Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I think that brings us to the end of the show. That's a lot. It was a lot. And uh, for more, make sure you subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts and give us a lot of stars and leave us a nice review because it helps people to find the show. And you can let us know what you thought of the movies and TV shows we discussed on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. I'm on Twitter at Ben Nguyen TV. I'm on Twitter at anything but Fifi. And the playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>